The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. And we're going to be continuing in our series called Broken Body in 1 Corinthians. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so far in this book, Paul has answered many questions posed by the church there in Corinth, questions about uh, sexuality, lawsuits, marriage, singleness. We've covered all those the last few weeks. But in chapter 8, Paul comes to a question that I'm sure many of you all have today. I mean, parents and teens have had great conflict over this question. This topic keeps parents up at night. This question is highly relevant to our lives today, and it is this. Is it okay for Christians to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? So you guys haven't argued about this? This has not been a hot topic in your family? So um, we're just going to read this, these passages straight through, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. So you can see what we're dealing with here. And then we'll kind of unpack this verse by verse. But let's go ahead and read the whole thing first. I've got to find my notes here. Here we go. First Corinthians chapter 8. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So um, let's get into their world for just a little bit. Uh, in Corinth, they had pagan temples, and they had this animal sacrificial system, which would look a little bit like the way that Israel would do that. And a family would bring an animal to a pagan priest, and they would slaughter the animal, and some parts are burned on the altar, and some are given to the priest, and then the rest is given back to the family. Now, on that day, meat was a rare delicacy. It's not like today where we just have it every meal, every day. But it was a rare thing, and so it was almost always associated with a celebration and a feast and associated with idolatry in that world. Now, I know you and I, we can relate, we can't relate to eating meat sacrificed to idols, 
But we can agree that eating meat cooked over a fire is sometimes a religious experience, right? We can agree with that. So with, with that meat, the worshiper would often throw a banquet. They would, this might be a banquet in their home or even down at the pagan temple. And so you can imagine there are these new Christians in Corinth that are getting, getting invitations to these meals. Come and eat with us. Come and celebrate with us. And so you can see how this created a, a social dilemma for the Christians in that day. In addition, if there was leftover meat, sometimes they would sell that meat in the marketplace, and a Christian could unknowingly purchase meat that had been offered to an idol. So was this a right thing? Was it a wrong thing? Was it best to never ask the question? Don't ask, don't tell. So as you can see, this could lead to factions there in Corinth. One group might be saying, you know, now that you're a Christian, you must avoid these dinner parties altogether. You shouldn't purchase meat in the meat market. You should only buy Christian meat from the Christian butcher at the Lifeway Christian meat store or something like that. Now, there was another party that said, well, now that you're a Christian, you're free in Christ. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Enjoy your freedom. So there's these different factions that are forming there in the city. So which party is right? This was a big social dilemma in their church. If the first one was right, well, then new Christians in Corinth would have to cut themselves off from the social scene in their city. How are they going to reach their city if they can't even go and hang out with people and talk to people and share meals with them? If it was always associated with pagan idolatry, how are they supposed to impact the city in which they live. So let me give you a modern day example of what this might look like. Many of you all know we take our high school students, we go on a a, uh, New York City mission trip almost every summer, except for 2020, of course. And uh, we got canceled this past year. We've gone to this, um, this area of Queens, New York, the last several years. And when we're there, the organization we serve with, they are always reaching out to people of different faiths to build a relationship with them so they can share the gospel. And one of the places they always take us is this, uh, it's a Sikh temple there in Queens. And we walk in, and, uh, and of course they know we're believers, they know that while we're there, we're there to talk with them about their faith and share with them what we believe as well. And we walk into the first room here, and you see this little altar. Under those blankets are their holy books. And they really treat their holy books like it is God, a, or a God. They, they personify their holy books in this way. They bow down to their holy book and, in a sense, worship their holy books. They even put their holy books in these beds at night because they treat them like it's a person. And so after we take a tour of this, of this temple, we then go downstairs into their basement where they have a 24-7 operation. They will give food to anyone and everyone that has need. You don't have to be part of their religion. They will feed anybody off the street, whoever may want to come in. They are open 24-7 in this downstairs cafeteria. Our students always love the fact we get to eat on the floor and our shoes are off. We have to cover our heads as well. But, um, but here's the thing. I don't have a background in this religion. I never worshipped in a place like this. But you can see how if someone who is... As far as I know, eating a meal there is not an act of worship in their temple. It's just a meal. But you can see how if someone came out of this religion and became a Christian, 
how the invitation to return back to the temple and participate in some of those kinds of things would be maybe hard for them to do because it would stir up all of these ideas and thoughts about their former way of life. And so this is a modern-day example of what that might look like. But even though the topic, the presenting topic in today's passage might seem irrelevant to us, the bigger question is, how should Christians handle gray issues in our world today? So we're going to take this. Um, I think many of you, some of you might hear that, and you ask, well, what is a gray issue? I didn't know there were gray issues in the church or in the Christian faith. I thought everything was clear-cut, clear cut, black and white, right and wrong. Well, many things are that way. A murder, lying, stealing, coveting, sex outside marriage. God's commands are for all people in all places, but there are some issues that are gray. If something's morally neutral, it may not be as clear-cut for us. So we're going to look at some principles we can apply to many situations we face today. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, you will see these quotation marks. When Paul does that, um, so you're not confused, these are not Paul's words, but these are Paul quoting their words back to them. So when Paul says, all of us possess knowledge, he's quoting something that they would be saying back to him. So these people, when they say all of us possess knowledge, what they meant was if we go to the temple and eat meat sacrificed to idols or we purchase it in the marketplace, it's no big deal because we have knowledge. We know these idols don't represent any real God. It's just a just a block of stone, just a piece of wood. And the meat is just meat. How can it be tainted if the temple and the idols don't point to any real gods out there? These are the ones that had, they claim to have knowledge. So those understanding this reality, they were taking their knowledge and imposing it on others, on the weaker people, brothers and sisters who may have just recently come to faith. Sometimes we can be correct in our knowledge, but destructive in how we use that knowledge. You might say it like this, knowledge divorced from love becomes a weapon to tear down rather than a tool to build up. So I think of, um, many of you guys have kids in here, I think of my own kids, many kids, most kids, all kids are scared of the dark, Right? And, um, and so you're tucking them in at night, and they ha- may have some fear. And uh, I just tell my kids there probably is a monster in their closet or under their bed. And they got to face their fears, you know. But, um, but there's a way, as a parent, to use your knowledge that there's nothing really in the closet or under the bed. There's a way to do that where you tear them down and a way to, to build them up. So... If you were to kneel by their bed and just look in the closet and say, that's just a really ridiculous idea that you're thinking up right now. Like, how, can, how can you think that way? How can you? There's a destructive way and a demeaning way to use that knowledge and to tear down your kid. And pretty soon, your kid's going to be more scared of you 
than they are of what might be under the bed. But there's also a constructive way, a way to build up, a caring and a compassionate way to use that same knowledge that you know nothing's in that closet to care for them and say, listen, you know, I, I struggled when I was your age as well, and sometimes I still do. And maybe pray for them. And there's a compassionate way to alleviate that situation. Both situations, you've got the same knowledge, but you're using it in a completely different way. You and I can be right in our knowledge, but wrong in how we use it. We can be, we can be so right that we're wrong. I'll let that phone just play out for a second there. So whenever you and I use knowledge this way, it can make us arrogant, prideful. Um, I love the, the image here that Paul uses, like puffed up, just full of hot air. But if our knowledge is governed by love, we can use it to be constructive. When Paul says knowledge puffs up, it's an image that there's, there's nothing, there's no substance inside that. It's just... It's just air. It's just nothing. But then the picture of love builds up. There is a, there's a substance to that. That's, that is solid. And I love how he uses that image. You know, many of us in the church, we love to show off our knowledge, how much we know. I think of when I was in college, there was this uh, we did a college service on Sunday evening at the church I attended in college, and there was this guy, I can't remember his name, but he would walk in, and he would have a stack of like five or six commentaries in his Bible, and he would sit on the front row, and he'd, he'd plop those commentaries down in the aisle so he had access to them, and as the preacher's up there preaching, he would be feverishly flipping through and, and trying to check his sources and make sure this guy was saying the right thing. And I'll just say, I'm glad I wasn't the preacher back then. But there, there are some people who just, they love to flaunt just how much they know. I think we can all be guilty of that. True knowledge doesn't lead to pride, but humility about, we, about what we don't know. On the other hand, the Christian shouldn't be anti-intellectual or anti-knowledge. There are people that can see the guy that I just described to you and say, well, I don't want to be like that. So I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to understand and have knowledge. So knowledge can puff up, but we shouldn't be fearful of knowledge. So how do we use our knowledge? When we share it, are people brought closer to God? Are people edified? Are Christians strengthened in their faith when you and I share what we know with them? Are people glad to have met us? Are even unbelievers intrigued by something you've said or even how you may have said it? I think back many years ago now when I was, I had a friend who was from England and I flew back to go visit his sister on a spring break back to England for one time when I was in college. And, and we're, we were having a dinner at this restaurant, and it's my friend and then another friend of his from England. And we're talking something related to the Bible. I can't recall what it was. And there were these two young ladies kind of sitting close by our table, and they could hear our conversation, and they began to be part of the conversation. And you could tell that there was already a mocking tone in what they were saying to us about our faith. And so we had this conversation with them. And 
if talking about religion wasn't controversial enough, we somehow began talking about politics. And then we started talking about abortion, and the conversation just took a turn. And I remember, I'm, a, I'm a, an immature college student who thinks I know things. And I don't know what I said or how I said it, but something, the, the tone just turned. And my friends looked at me and, as if to say, okay, you just crossed the line. And so we ended up kind of walking out and just saying our apologies and walking on. And I will tell you that after that conversation, I don't think they were glad to have met us. And maybe you've been in those situations yourself and you go, man, I could have, I could have handled that a lot differently. I may be convinced and right in the knowledge that I had, but I didn't present that in a very loving way. I like how David Pryor says this. He says, when a Christian's knowledge is radiated and released by love, he is clearly demonstrating that he knows God and that God knows him, that there is a deepening personal relationship between the two. So do we use our knowledge in this way, or does our knowledge always have an edge? I think in the church, many believers, we think we grow by just collecting information and and collecting knowledge, collecting understanding. But God is, listen, God is not a subject to be studied. He's a person to be known and loved. The point of the Christian life is not to know things about God, but to know God himself. So does our knowledge lead to love for God, worship of God, and obedience to God? Look at verse 4. It says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul again quotes back to them what they have said to him. They have said to him, an idol has no real existence. We know that. Their argument goes like this. Because an idol is just a block of wood or a piece of stone, it doesn't really point to any gods because those gods don't even exist. And because those gods don't exist, how can the food sacrificed to them become tainted? So Paul agrees with their premise. And he is saying, you're right, an idol is just a block of wood and there is only one God. But then watch how he uses that to build his argument further. In verse 6, He says, for us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus. So what is Paul doing when he does that? I think Paul is making a not-so-subtle appeal to unity. It reminds me of the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples and for all those that would come to know Jesus throughout history And he prays that that his disciples would be one. Even as we, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are one. The unity in the Trinity should be reflected in us. Reflected in the body of Christ. Now unity does not mean uniformity. So in Corinth, 
There are the strong who have knowledge but need to exercise love, and there are the weak, maybe new believers. And how do we know when a church is healthy? We know a church is healthy when the strong and the weak can dwell together in unity. And they can yield to each other and love one another and care for one another. That's how you know a church is a healthy church. And this is what I think Paul is wanting for the Corinthians. In addition, as Paul speaks of idolatry, I'm reminded of Psalm 115. This is in reference to the idols of the nations that surround Israel. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So right here, the psalmist is comparing Israel's God with the gods of the surrounding nations. And these words agree with Paul and with the strong believers in Corinth that these idols, they can't, they can't speak, see, hear, feel. They don't, they don't point to any real God out there. But I think these few verses in Psalm 115 highlight a real issue. Even though the idols themselves aren't real, idolatry is real. Even though an idol is just a block of stone or wood, idolatry is very real. Idolatry has real and grave consequences. Whenever you and I put something in place of God, it is an, it is an evil, sinister satanic act and it has substance to it the idol itself might not point to anything out there of substance but whenever you and I put something in or someone in place of God that act is a real act and a truly evil act and that act has substance to it and carries real and grave consequences I've heard many people summarize Verse 8 this way. We become what we worship. So our heart is an idol factory, always attempting to replace God with something else. And this idea, this is why your kids, you ever wonder why your, your kids when they start, you know, following certain movie stars or, or athletes or musicians, they start to look like them and talk like them and act like them, well, we become what we worship. Or even for us, it's why we speak and act like our favorite political candidates. We become what we worship. Our heart's an idol factory, always attempting to replace God with something else. But if we worship empty things, we're going to become empty if we worship something in place of God, we're going to become like the thing we worship, which is going to point us to emptiness. It's interesting that the psalmist covers 
some of the five senses. An idol doesn't have any of the five senses. And if we commit idolatry, we lose our spiritual sense. We can't, we can't see, hear, feel spiritually. We become deadened and become numb. So going back to Paul's argument in verses four through six, Paul agrees the idols aren't real, but many people in Corinth, they, they really lived in idolatry. And Paul is saying, it would be wise for you that are the strong, that have all the knowledge you're bragging about, that you would not discount that reality for the weaker brother or sister in Christ. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So we'll explain what this means, and we're going to get practical here in a second. But those, those with knowledge, the strong, might begin to feel superior to the weak because of their knowledge. So Paul reminds them, listen, not everyone's like you. Some have a weak conscience. And when they eat this food, it stirs up their past and they feel like they're committing idolatry all over again. I know there are many stories in this room of how you came to Christ, when you came to Christ. But there, for many of you, there are, there are places that you know you just can't go. There are people that you know used to know, that you can't go back to. You just know it'd stir up too much. It would cause me to sin. It would cause me to stumble. I just, I can't, I can't go there. I can't go with, be with them again. And I think in verse 7, Paul mentions the conscience. This is moral sensitivity. You see, God has given us a conscience so that we can sense conviction about sin, but also to help us navigate the gray. So how should Christians handle gray issues in our world today? Well, first off, does something violate God's commands? Does it violate God's commands? If it is against scripture, then it would be sin for all people in all time and all places. Listen, everything, everything's not gray. There are some Christians that want to make everything is just Gray, everything is your opinion, everything is however you want to see it. But no, there, there are things that are clear in Scripture that are not gray, that are black and white. These are God's commands. And we can't turn sin issues into gray issues. And Paul addresses many of those already in this book. And to the younger people in the room, I will also add to this, obeying the law and obeying your parents. That would also fit under this one as well. Then the second question we can ask is, does it violate my conscience? Does something violate my conscience? Some people want a clear-cut rule for everything. If there's not a Bible verse about it, then I'm doing it. If there's no verse that says I can't fill in the blank, then I'm going to go do that, whatever it is. They think they're free to do whatever they, they please to do. But listen, some things, some things should violate your conscience, if nothing ever stirs your conscience, be afraid. We should be afraid because that'd make you a sociopath. We need you to have a conscience. 
Listen, it's possible for something to be morally neutral and still be a violation of conscience. Paul mentions this over in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, where he says, if we cannot do something with a clear conscience, then for us, it's sin. God gave you and I a conscience for good reason. So I know the example that everyone likes to go to is the example of drinking. That's the most obvious one. And we believe that we would say drinking, of course, is a sin, or I'm sorry, being drunk is a sin. That's clear in Scripture, but drinking would not be. For some, it's a violation of conscience. Maybe due to alcoholism in the family, or for someone like my mom, it's a violation of conscience for her because her brother was killed by a drunk driver. So it'd be wrong for to judge someone for that, but also wrong for that person to judge somebody with a different view. So you can see how with most issues we encounter, there are these, these gray issues. You can see how in the church there can be these two camps that form. There are those who indulge, those who abstain, and both groups can just judge each other. And you can understand the factions that can be created in these situations. Listen, we cannot turn issues of conscience into commands. I was raised in a church and denomination that taught that drinking was always wrong. That's what they taught. And I would get into arguments about it with Christian friends. And listen, it took me, it took me years to begin to see it differently. And maybe you're here and you're a skeptic or not yet a believer, and you're raised in a similar environment. And maybe you saw, saw people turn issues of conscience into commands, and it made you question everything. I want to encourage you today that the Bible, I think, rejects that. I think Jesus rejects that. We don't, we don't turn issues of conscience into commands. We should not add to Scripture because that makes people question all of Scripture. And I really would say this as a high school pastor we shouldn't be surprised when young people walk away from their faith if we've given them an unbiblical view of the faith or version of the faith. If we've taken issues of conscience and made those commands, it should be no surprise that they say, you know what, I don't want to, I want no part of that. And in reality, they're rejecting something that we should all reject, but they end up rejecting the whole thing because we gave them a false version of it. We've got to be careful that we don't violate conscience, but it's wrong to turn issues of conscience into commands. And then third question, does it exploit a personal weakness? Now, I'll admit to you, this is not a question I'm taking from the passage. It's just a good, wise question for us to ask. If having certain things or being in certain places causes you to sin, then you got to rethink it. These are wisdom issues, if having a particular phone causes you to sin or staying up late watching TV with no one around or being on a computer late at night, by themselves, those are morally neutral activities. But if you're falling into sin, it's not wise. So many of us ask the question, we only ask, can I? We don't ever ask, should I? We need to ask, should I? That's a better question for us to ask. We might be free in Christ to do something but still be unwise for us to do it. So I want to get my final question from verses 9 through 13. 
It says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Our final question. What do the people around me need from me? What do the brothers and sisters around you in the body of Christ need from you? Many of us approach the Christian life as if it's just, it's just me and God. But listen, what, what you and I do, it impacts people. It affects people. And it's a sin to violate our own conscience, but it's also a sin to cause someone else to violate their conscience. When you and I cause someone to violate their conscience, it wounds their conscience, sears their conscience, and makes them unable to see right from wrong. And in verse 12 is the most powerful statement in this passage where Paul says, sinning against someone in that way, causing them to violate their own conscience, is a sin against Christ. Sinning against the body of Christ is a sin against Christ himself. So how do we know a church is healthy when people can differ on issues of conscience but still be together and love one another and respect one another and yield to each other? I think sadly in the church, we have replaced Christian freedom with American freedom. American freedom says, I have a right to fill in the blank Don't deny me my rights. But Christian freedom says we are free in Christ, but we're also free to set aside that freedom for the sake of someone else. It's a whole different understanding of freedom. We are free to love one another. That is Christian freedom. You know, last night I was thinking of what what story could I share? What could I... What example could I use that would really drive this point home? And I couldn't think of anything. And then I just thought, you know what? Jesus. That's a great example for us to use. So read with me in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We worship a God who gave up his rights so that you and I could have reconciliation with with him. Part of our freedom is that we get to limit our freedom for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you gave up your divine rights and entered human flesh, entered into our world. You became weaker 
so that we can be made strong. God, we thank you for how you modeled that. You were an example, but you were way more than an example. You accomplished something by coming here. And you achieved for us a victory over sin, over death. God, we thank you for breaking the power of sin in our lives. God, we pray that you'd help us, help us, God, to see our walk with you as more than just me and you, but how it impacts us, how it impacts those around us. God, may we live with wisdom and discernment and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we care for each other and look out for each other in the body of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.